Earlier this year, Q Magazine announced that they were closing up shop, and it got me to thinking about a time in my life when buying the latest issues of music magazines was almost as important as buying new records. That's the time of my life that I'm about to revisit in this episode of The Creationists. Welcome to The Creationist, a podcast about people who create. I'm your host, Steve Waxman. I've been a music fan for most of my life, but I didn't really get into rock music until the mid-70s. And the 70s were a great time to be a rock fan. You not only had your favorite bands, but you also had your favorite magazines. And there were so many to choose from. There was Circus and Cream and Hit Parader and Rock Scene and Rolling Stone, of course. And if you were a little bit, well, I don't know, intellectual, you might read Crawdaddy or find an article in Mother Jones. Or maybe you spend a little extra money to get something from the UK, like The NME or Melody Maker. And as you read each article, you got to know and become fans of writers like Sylvie Simmons, David Frick, Lisa Robinson, and of course, the late, great Lester Bangs. These were the names of the people who turned us on to the music that became indelible in our lives. Doing research on bands in the 70s was like a real chore and a real challenge. You know, there were no sources. You couldn't look people up. There were no books. There was no internet. There were no, you know, behind the music VH1 shows. All there was was like magazine articles, you know, newspaper articles and albums. That's the voice of Ira Robbins, another of the familiar journalists we've come to count on for our information. In 1974, Ira and friends Dave Schulps and Karen Rose started Trouser Press as a fanzine sold by hand outside of concerts, but it eventually found its way onto magazine racks, and finally, in 1978, into my hands when I saw Rick Nielsen of Cheap Trick on the cover. What I found fascinating about Trouser Press was that reading the magazine always felt like the kinds of conversations me and my friends had on the weekends as we played our new favorite records for one another. With all that in mind, I got in touch with Ira Robbins to find out what motivated them to create Trouser Press. Uh, it was, it was, there were two steps in the process. The first one was meeting Dave Schultz at the Bronx High School of Science in 1969 and discovering that we both liked the same kind of music and that we both had the same sort of like obsessive interest in it and kind of a proselytic desire to kind of tell people about the stuff that we liked. I mean, neither of us, I don't remember ever saying, hey, we should become rock writers or anything like that. But, you know, when we went off to college, um, he went to D.C. He went to, to George Washington in D.C. and I stayed in the city in New York. He and I both started writing for our college papers. So, you know, kind of without really much discussion. In, in high school, I had sent some stuff to Cream because we had a friend in high school, a very notorious classmate. Why he's notorious is sort of irrelevant to this. Um, but he, he got a, a Sparks album review published in Cream. And like, you know, we were like 16 or 17. And we were incredibly, I was incredibly jealous. And so I thought, well, Christ, I could do that. So I, I fancied myself. I, I had done some, some neighborhood community journalism and some political journalism before that. You know, nothing serious. But like I, was, I, I wasn't unfamiliar with putting pen to paper. And, and so I sent some stuff to Cream and I got a nice rejection letter back from Lester. And then Dave and I sort of, we kind of split up into two different directions. But then he was back in the city in the winter of 73 uh, for holidays. And some guy that somebody we knew knew invited us to a guy's house in Yonkers, a guy called Frank Reda, R-E-D-A, who died a couple, I think last year. And Frank was like a crazed Kinks fan and a couple of other bands, mainly the Kinks. 
and he and he was having a kind of like a like a record collector's hangout at his house in Yonkers, and we didn't know any of these people. Um, but I guess we somebody told us about it, and so we went. And Davis from the Bronx, and the Bronx is not far from Yonkers, so he kind of knew his way around. I didn't. And so we went and we met this woman, Karen Rose, who was the editor, who had been the editor of the Brooklyn College newspaper, which is kind of a big deal. I mean, in New York, Brooklyn College is a major campus, and the paper probably had a 15 or, you know, 10 or 15,000 circulation. And we got talking on the train ride back downtown, and the idea of starting a magazine just came up. I mean, because we had all been reading. Like the fan, there were there were there were record collectors fanzines that were out. Um, Alan Betrock had the Rock Marketplace. Greg Shaw had Bomp, and we we all kind of knew of them and read them. And you know, we weren't really serious record collectors in any stretch of the imagination. We were more bargain bin raiders. But but we had that mindset of like you know, there's a lot to know about this stuff, and we want to learn more. And we literally just with Karen on the subway ride home said, you know, hey, we should try starting try try putting out a magazine. I mean, it wasn't like let's start a business and spend 10 years doing it. It was like, Hey, I bet you we could put out an issue of a fancy, you know, that was literally the extent of it. And then we did. So it kind of went from there. So did you guys have discussion as like what kind of bands were going to be that you were going to cover? How, how did the decision get made as to what it was going to be like editorially and what it was going to look like even, or what it was going to be called even? <laughs> well, okay. Th- th- those are different questions. The, the editorial policy was pretty much, who we liked. I mean, Dave and I were diehard Who fans. Dave had turned me on to Roxy Music. I liked British blues and, you know, we liked British Invasion stuff and we liked some of the hard rock coming out of England, you know, Deep Purple, that kind of thing. And Karen was a dyed-in-the-wool Jeff Beck fanatic and a Peter Frampton fanatic. I'm not quite sure what those two things, how to meld those two things and she's not around any longer to ask. So our idea was that we would just write about the bands we liked. So, um, and we, you know, we had a couple of people that mostly people Karen knew. And so, I mean, you can see the first issue. It's on the Trouser Press website, you know, and it's got, it's got a, a list of, of things that I, factoids about the who that I came up with. And I think it's got a pretty things article that one of us wrote because we just had discovered them and really liked them. You know, the pink fairies, pink fairies. And, uh, and there was, you know, it was kind of like a little bit of this, and a little bit of that, but our big, marketing slash editorial thought was that in order to sell the magazine, we should have it be about bands that were playing in New York. So we kind of like filtered the bands that we liked with the upcoming schedule of like the Academy of Music. And that got us to Rory Gallagher, who had a show there in March of 74. And so we had an article in the first issue about Rory Gallagher. And so we sold it on the street, standing in front of the Academy of Music on 14th Street uh, for a quarter. And so the, you know, the, the, that idea kept us going for a little while, like mo- maybe three or four issues. We were very conscientious about who was playing and could we, you know, did, were we interested in them enough to write an article about them? Um, and if we did, you know, that was kind of like our, our uh, marketing idea was to sell you know, to, to kids going into a show, it's like, here's, here's an article about, a, about the band you're going to see. It was kind of a rudimentary concept, but it, it really helped. At, you know, to, I mean, we sold, I think the first issue we printed about 350 copies on a mimeograph. My dad had a mimeograph machine. And I think we sold probably 100 or 150 the first night. So, you know, it was kind of like, okay, this works. You know, and I, I, mean, I remember going home with like a huge wad of quarters in my pocket. I mean, literally like a hundred quarters 
you know, so big, heavy wad of change. So, um, but I mean, literally we thought, you know, if, if, if the first one does okay, we'll think about, you know, what to do after that. And it was just kind of like, should we do another one? Oh yeah. Okay, sure. Let's do another one. You know I mean? It was, it was very casual. So it wasn't planned that it was going to be my, bi-monthly or whatever. It was just. Yeah. Not, not in the slightest. I mean, we, we did everything incrementally. I mean, it was kind of, it, in retrospect, it was interesting because, because unlike a real business that has kind of like a, like a business plan and sort of puts things into, into play in a very uh, scheduled and disciplined sequence, we just kind of like scratched our heads every week and said, well, what, what can we do now? You know, do we have enough resources to, to move to this level? I mean, our, our early editorial meetings were in a post office near Grand Central because it was kind of like a good meeting place for the three of us. And so we would just like literally like get together in the post office and discuss what, what issues, you know, what, what articles we were going to write and stuff. So, you know, it took us a long time before we got our first office. It took us, you know, we, we changed printers a couple of times and that was always like a, an incremental step from really, you know, crappy quick copy printing to, you know, proper lithography offset to, you know, real, you know, uh, you know, saddle stitching and stuff. You know, and it was just kind of like, you know, color, you know, first we had the little two color on the cover and then we had the two color inside. Then we went to four color. Yeah. So it was very much like what, what's the next thing that we can do. And, and that kept us moving forward for a long time. So the name for the uh, magazine, it at, certainly at the beginning was quite a mouthful and you're, uh, you know, Transoceanic Trouser Press. Yeah. Uh, did you have other names before you settled on that? Oh Yeah. Yeah, um, I have a piece of paper somewhere in my files of some of the names we tried, um, we talked about, and no, no, no one ever remembered who actually proposed the name we finally went with. Um, so I can't speak to that at all. But one of them, because Karen and I were both in New York and Dave was in D.C., we thought we'd call it like the Row Row Express for Robins and Rose, which that would not have been good. But the trouser press, I mean, Dave and I they had turned me on to the Bonzo dog band. And, you know, when somebody said trouser, so I assume it wasn't Karen that came up with trouser because she didn't know the Bonzos. It was probably Dave. And when he said something about trouser like the pun was kind of fun, you know, like the, there was going to be a press, you know, a, a journalism press, but with a, a kind of a Dada mentality. And we added the transoceanic for both clarity of our vision to be a Anglophile magazine and to get the top of the pops anagram reference um and also there, there was a, a a kink song you know top of the pops and and uh, we just started kind of we thought it was like having a triple entendre was pretty cool so we were very pleased with ourselves and you know and it was hard to lay out that you know a magazine cover that said that on it but we incorporated under that name and then you know eventually just dropped the transoceanic because it became really ugly on the cover you know we wanted to be a little more streamlined um but the name trouser press wasn't necessarily a good name either in terms of conveying to potential readers what we were and what we were about. I would go to newsstands from time to time and see us racked in between like Women's Wear Daily and, you know, like, uh, you know, Glamour or something like that because it, they assumed it was a fashion magazine without thinking about it. But, you know, I mean, we, we kind of liked the idea that it was a distinctive name. But, you know, we used to spell, I used to have to spell it on the phone all the time because, you know, you'd say, you know, I'm calling up from Trouser Press Magazine and they're like, you know, you call a printer or something like that. They're like, what? You know, or like you call an advertiser or, or you know, a, uh, you know, a city agency. And they're like, what, what, what does that mean? Because, you know, Trouser Press in Britain is at least a common phrase. You know, I mean, there, there is a real thing. There is a real Trouser Press. As, as in here. Yeah. You actually have one. 
did. Um, you know, but, but in America, it's a totally unknown concept. I mean, pretty much. Yeah, it was, it was a difficult name. I mean, we actually, uh, about 60 issues in, we tried to change it. We did a test run cover uh, calling the magazine The Beat, which was a good, co- a good, a good name. I mean, it's been used by other magazines, but um, we, uh, we didn't get a, a decisive uh, A-B test that it was a better seller on the newsstand, so we just stuck with Charles. Was it a conscious decision at the beginning to mostly be, or, or except for Todd Rundgren, it seems, to be Anglophile? <laughs> Yeah, it was it was just kind of natural. I mean, I mean, we just that was what we liked, and it, it felt like an identity because you know, one of the sort of motivating ideas we had was that the bands that we liked weren't being covered uh, in the mainstream music press, which at the time was you know Rolling Stone, Cream, and Circus, and Rock Magazine, and um, Fusion, and Crawdaddy. You know, I mean, like they were very sort of unaware of what was coming, what was happening in Britain. You know, certainly the prog rock wasn't really getting covered, which is one of the things that we embraced. And British Invasion, you know, was something that really we all agreed on, you know. And so we did articles on the animals, um, you know, the pretty things, uh, kinks, Dave Clark Five, you know, the Who, Stones, Beatles, that kind of thing. And so it, it, it was very, it was conscious, but it was natural. I mean, we didn't, it wasn't a marketing idea. It was, it was a, you know, this is what we like. I mean, I, I've gone back and thought about this and, and I really... It's funny because I grew up listening to folk music and blues. I mean, that, I, that's kind of my background. I mean, I mean, I was I was a rock and roll fan from the age of ten, but I also, you know, was very interested. I went to the Philadelphia Folk Festival every year and stuff like that. I mean, I was I was a little bit more diverse than just being interested in what was on you know American Bandstand, and and yet, sort of when I think about it, I really never liked American rock music at least not until like the new wave happened, you know, I mean, sixties American rock. I mean, they're bands I like, I mean, I would certainly rate, you know, the love and spoonful and, and, you know, blues project and mamas and papas and the young rascals, you know, but, but, but when you talk about like the big bands of like the late sixties, early seventies, none of them really were up my alley. I always felt much more at home with the British bands in terms of the way they presented themselves and the kind of influences that they exposed i mean you know i mean it, it's it's a, it's kind of shameful to say it but i mean cream playing american blues meant a lot more to me than an american band playing american blues well I, i'm i'm a little bit curious and stay with me here for just a second here yeah. the the impression that i got reading the first few um issues were you're happy to delve into the beatles but you took a little bit of um a sarcastic, more of a sarcastic view of bands like the Stones and Led Zeppelin and things like that that were already popular. This that's that's kind of the way I read it. I think that's probably true. I think we, I mean, we always had kind of an underdog mentality. I mean, you know, like I said, the you know the impetus for for a lot of what we did was that they weren't getting written about, and so the bands that were being, I, I think we probably had kind of an inverse reaction to the bands that were getting written about, you know, it was kind of like they didn't need us. We always thought of ourselves as a very, well, not always, but at the beginning, we thought of ourselves as a very small voice, you know, kind of in the wilderness, kind of sticking up for those that needed it, you know, which was, for me at least, it was very much an outgrowth of my political beliefs. You know, I mean, I was, I was raised a red diaper baby. And so, you know, politics, you know, left-wing politics was part of my life from a very young age. And, and, you know, that was always about, you know, sticking up for the, you know, the, the, the people who didn't have a, a voice or, you know, or, 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 equality or freedom. And so, 
you know, I, I think I transferred that at least subliminally to my interest in bands. And so I was always a lot more interested in bands that no one had ever heard of or that, you know, that nobody was writing about than I was about the big one. You know, but I mean, but we, we, we found places for those bands. I mean, you know, Dave's interview with Jimmy Page turned out to be one of the, you know, the great achievements of Trouser Breast's existence. You know, and, and by the time we, we got, we put the Beatles on the cover, we were kind of like, uh, well, you know, I guess we could sort of do this. You know, we put Jefferson Airplane on the cover also. And that was the same sort of like, not really our first choice, but what the hell, you know, it was kind of like, we've done, we've done a lot of that. We can do a little of this. Well, it's, it's interesting because uh, in issue 34, there's uh, there's an intro from you where you sort of talk about how the bands that you were championing before they were popular in America have now become popular and they're not really your bag anymore. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I, I, I've, always, I've always had that kind of dog in the manger instinct about, you know, once the band that I discovered becomes popular, it's like my enthusiasm wanes a little bit. It's, it's not a good thing. And I... I I, I have thought it in myself at times, you know, but at the same time, bands change. I mean, I've, I've, I've given this a lot of thought. I wrote a whole article once about Bebop Deluxe, who I discovered in England in 1974. I was on a trip there and, and somebody at Harvest gave me their album. And when I got home, I, I loved it and, you know, ended up following and interviewing Bill Nelson a bunch of times and, you know, and, and, and saw the band play a bunch of times and, you know, got a little friendly with them and was really enthusiastic. And then they made a record that I didn't really care for. You know, I mean, they were very much, you know, clearly, if you look at, if you know anything about Bill Nelson's career, you know that, you know, over time, he was on a hugely different trajectory than what you might have guessed from, you know, a Bowie-esque glam band, you know, that, that Bebop Deluxe started as. I mean, his, his solo records are, you know, entirely something else. And he just kind of like moved very far away from what I had initially liked about them. And I had kind of a whole critical crisis of like, can I rip a band that I really like because they made a record that I don't like, or do I have an obligation to keep liking them and kind of wait until they get back on, on track? And, you know, the conclusion I came to was like, no, I've got to, you know, say what I think. I went through that same thing with Cheap Trick. I mean, you know, I was, I was like an early and, and insanely enthusiastic booster. You know, they made a record that I didn't like, which I just happened to be reviewing for Rolling Stone. And, you know, we didn't talk for like eight years. So, you know, but, you know, I, I, I never felt bad about it. I never thought, like, I shouldn't have done that, you know. So, and, and, then, and, and then we got to be friends again. So it's all good. Well, it's funny you bring up Cheat Trick. I, I would have eventually got to them, well, probably pretty soon anyway, but I'm going to get them to right now because the first issue of Trouser Press that I ever saw, the first issue I ever bought was the one with, um, with Rick Nielsen on the cover. Because uh, being a huge Cheap Trick fan, from I was lucky enough to hear that first record uh, several months before it came out because CBS had done a record launch party here in Toronto, and a couple of friends of mine um, had their own fanzine. I don't know if you know it, uh, Denim Delinquent. Do you remember Jim Parrott and D Deck? Okay. Anyway, they they were invited out to the party, and I was babysitting for them. They brought they brought the album back. That white that white jacket open that opened up, and the four guys came out. And they played it for me that night, and I immediately became a fan. And um, it's, you know, that first bio that was out there in the world was ridiculous. I mean, it didn't tell you, it, yeah, it didn't tell you anything but lies. But as a kid, I don't know what's, I don't know what's real and what's not real. Your, your article was the first 
comprehensive article that I'd seen on Cheap Trick. And after reading it, I realized I'm still just as confused <laughs> as I was before. <laughs> well, I mean, one of the things that I learned over the years, because I, I, I've, I've gotten to know them really well and I've, I've spent a lot of time with them, you know, and I've, I know a lot of people now who go back really far with them. Um, like uh, my friend Brad Elvis in Chicago, you know, saw them when they were playing, you know, bars in Wisconsin. You know, I, I've learned that there's a lot more to know than I ever knew. You know, and what I was writing at the time, you know, and this is a, a kind of steady throb through my view of music journalism now is the amount of, of factual information available in 2020 compared to the amount of factual information that was available in 1977 is just mind boggling. You know, I mean, the th you know, bands that you thought you knew a lot about. I mean, I, I wrote um, liner notes for the Clash Box, um, I guess in 1980, maybe. And uh, no, no, it must have been later because uh, their career was still going in 1980, probably 1986 or something like that. And and you know, I thought like I I had read every British Weekly mention that they that had ever been made about them, and I thought I knew everything about them. You know, and I've since read like you know Chris Levitch's book about Joe Strummer, and it's like okay, I didn't know any of this. You know, and I th I thought I was like a bee's knees in terms of being the knowledgeable Clash guy. And then I'm reading this stuff, and it's like none of it, none of what I knew. I mean, what I knew was like this much compared to this much, you know, and it was like, and in, in, in conjunction with that thought, I would point out to anybody listening who's not as old as I am, or as, maybe even as old as you are, that doing research on bands in the 70s was like a real chore and a real challenge. You know, there were no sources. You couldn't look people up. There were no books. There was no internet. There were no, you know behind the music VH1 shows, all there was was like magazine articles, you know, newspaper articles and albums, you know, and if you went to interview somebody, you were probably getting their story for the first time other than whoever wrote the bio for the record company, you know, and so exactly what you said about Cheap Trick, I mean, Eric Von Lustbotter, who was a staff writer at, at uh, Epic and went on to become a very successful novelist, you know, he was just told to like make up some bullshit for fun because, I mean, that was Cheap Trick's Attitude. I mean, their, their their manager thought he was very cagey, and you know, they they, they wanted to be very, you know, ooh, 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 you know, they wanted to be mysterious. But the real story, you know, turned out to be much more complicated and much more, you know, there's a lot more to it. And, and I still don't know the whole story. And so, you know, when I interviewed them, it was like, okay, tell tell me, you know, tell me what, tell me who you are, really. I mean, you know, we did a lot of interviews in those days where you know you were doing what you now would never do in an interview, which is like sort of tell me your bio biographical facts. You know, now it's like a waste of time. It's like, well, just go to fucking Wikipedia, you know? But, but, now, but in those days, it was like, okay, when did the band form? You know, and like, and, and, and were there other, any other members? And like, how many albums have you put out? Which one, when did this one come out? I mean, like, I mean, we were starting from absolute ground zero with most of the bands we interviewed. Well, I think that, frankly, I think that that's one of the things that's really great about Trouser Press is that because you guys were music fans, uh, more than maybe more than journalists, well, definitely more than journalists, I guess. I mean, that you were that, <laughs> that you were music fans, that you were asking the next logical question in your interviews. You know, because, because there wasn't a lot out there written about many of these bands because there just wasn't a lot of journalism outside of... I guess outside of the UK, really. Yeah. You know, and you guys, the interviews that you guys have in Trouser Press are so comprehensive because you're, you, I guess, walked into those rooms as fans that didn't really know anything apart from the fact that you loved those records. 
No, we were very prepared for interviews. We read everything we could find, you know, in the British weeklies about the bands that we liked. I mean, you know, there was there was like Zigzag, and that was helpful for you know for to a degree because like they would do in depth pieces, and we knew our key frame family trees backwards and forwards. And you know, Dave and I had done this project. This is actually another salient detail. Dave and I had done this project that was his idea uh, when we were in high school, where we would go to the the, the Lincoln Center in New York. There's the Lincoln Center Library in New York has microfilm of Melody Maker going back like 80 years. And Dave and I started a project where we would look up, look through every issue of Melody Maker week by week, every name of every musician that we came across, we would write down what band they were in, what instrument they played and when, you know, when the reference was. And so we, what we were building was a genealogy and we, 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 we did it line by line by musicians. So we would just have a, a sheet of paper for L. And, and if, if, if you saw like, you know, Jack Lewis, you put Jack Lewis's name on it. And then you'd see he was in, you know, the Schmageggy band. And so you'd write he was in the Schmageggy band in 1969. And then like a month later, we might be going through another one. And like, there's Jack Lewis and he's in another band. And so we'd write that down. And as a result, we had this amazing resource. I mean, it's literally like a hundred sheets of notebook paper. And I still have it. And it was like the the beginnings of, of a proper genealogy. And so we would go to, to interview bands and say, oh, you were in the John Dummer band in the 1960s, weren't you? And they would be flabbergasted because, A, we were little little American kids asking them about some British band that might have played for a year in the Midlands, you know, and put out one album on Tetragrammaton or something like that. You know, and we used to get this, this, this standard reply from people going like, which apocryphal, but I mean, they literally said it, like, you know more about me than I do because, you know, we approached them with, with at least the, the outlines of their career, which they would never have gotten from anybody else that interviewed them in America, except for like the most diehard fans. And we would do this, you know, once a week with different bands, you know? So, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, interviewed status quo, we interviewed the Trogs, you know, uh, we interviewed the pretty things. I mean, it was all like this kind of, and we were prepared, you know, and, and I mean, Dave, especially, and, you know, I, to, to that point, um, I recently retired from the radio company that Dave's worked for for a lot longer than I ever did. And he he's interviewed probably 5,000 artists in his time there. And he's been completely prepared for everyone. It's amazing. He's like, it's like the greatest rock interviewer that no one has ever heard of other than Travis and Press readers. So, I mean, you have people that are become recognizable names over the course of years. And I'm just, I don't know where they were, where what their status was in those days. I mean, Dave Frick was one, Kurt Loder's another. And I'm just wondering, I mean, there's a lot of people that came through the Trouser Press who became noted writers over the years. Yeah, I mean, uh, there were some that, some that we, we sort of had something to do with giving them a, a launching pad and some that were already well-established. Stephen Grant became a, a, a big Marvel comic writer. Um, Richard Gare wrote for us, uh, I think, or, or am I remembering a different part of my life? Yeah, Jim Farber did a little stuff for us. Ira Kaplan did some things for us before he was in Yellow Tango. Um, there's a lot of them. You know, the people that, that uh, John Leland, of the time, who's at the New York Times now, he, he, he got his start with us. Bill Flanagan actually did his first non-local, he was from, uh, New England, he did his first like non-regional stuff for us. Um, and then Pete Silverton and Paul Rambali in, in, in London, you know, both went on to jobs with the weeklies, but they, they both sent us unsolicited manuscripts uh, just out of the blue and, and we ran them and, and they became kind of our, our British correspondents. Although we, 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 Pete had written his name at the top of his 
Ducks Deluxe feature that he sent us, or his, he sent us a, a 101ers feature and a Ducks Deluxe thing. And we'd never heard of the 101ers, and the clash hadn't really happened yet, so it wasn't yet uh, kind of a background story that we felt was, was compelling enough. Uh, so we ran his Ducks Deluxe piece, but we couldn't read his 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 scrawled name at the top of the piece, so we ran it with a mis, mis, with an incorrect byline. We called him Pete Sylvester, and he and I are still very good friends, and we laugh about that every once in a while. I'm wondering how long did it take till the record labels started recognizing and working with you guys directly? About two or three years, you know, we would get like one thing here and there, and then we made some friends. You know, people, we, we found some support, you know, in, in particular locations. I mean, there were a couple of people at Epic, um, Bruce Harris and Jim Charney, who, who thought that what we were doing was valuable. I actually found in my files recently a letter that I wrote to Seymour Stein complaining bitterly in like the late 70s about the lack of advertising from Sire Records that we were getting. And, I, you know, kind of like, look, we're supporting all of your bands. I mean, it was it was it was sort of a. A pathetic quid pro quo plea, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like, we'll do this for you if you do that for us. It's like, we did this for you. Why won't you do this for us? But, you know, we, we, we eventually started happening. And, you know, I mean, we got, we didn't have an ad salesman for a long time, but we finally got uh, Joel Weber to be our ad salesman who went, went on to an interesting career as an A&R man at Island. He signed Driving and Crying and a couple other bands. Uh, but yeah, it took a while, but eventually, I mean, you know, we started getting like this weird stuff. Like we got like four color movie ads from like, you know, music related movies and things like that. So that was kind of cool. But yeah, I mean, it was always, it was always a challenge, you know, and then we, we reached out and got a lot of support from independent labels, you know, I mean, they, they, they understood the value a lot more so than, you know, a, a, a major label, you know? And so it, it, it was hard. I mean, we never got an overwhelming amount of advertising support from the record industry, but you know, it was enough to keep going for a long time. Well, you know, it's interesting and, you know, so so much of the history of 70s rock music is in your head, but you put it on paper. And those of us who are into 70s rock because that's our era can relive some, you know, a lot of bands that we didn't see from the very beginning through the pages of Trouser Press, especially now that everything is online. If you, you know, take, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot to read in Trouser Press. And if you take, you know, you guys have done a really great job of indexing everything so we can go straight to our favorite bands and more often than not, see their development through your eyes and the eyes of the people that wrote with you. Yeah, I mean, I mean, probably not as much as I would have liked. I mean, I've looked up stuff and kind of like, turns out to be like a passing reference of like, you know, a list of, of six bands and they're one of them, you know? And so, you know, I mean, I, I, I wish that, that, we never would have done this, but I wish we had been a little bit more, not organized, but sort of more, you know, extensive in our coverage. But, you know, we couldn't, you know, I would like to make one point that, that you didn't exactly touch on, but it's sort of, it's in the background for me. I get a lot of credit for Trouser Press. And, and I will not deny that I worked my ass off for 10 years and it was my entire life for that whole time. And it's been my life on and off for a lot of the time since. But I, I was by no means the primary or sole driving force of trouser press. You know, I mean, I, I, the other people that, that, that were, there were other people that had a huge role in the magazine, maybe not, you know, from the beginning to the end as I did, but I, I always chafe a little bit at, at, at the kind of the credit that I get for this because, you know, it's like people say, Oh, what you wrote about them? And it's like, I look it up and say, I didn't write that. You know, I mean, you know, it, it's, it's unfair to the other people to think that, you know, that one person embodied the whole thing because I didn't, you know, I mean, a lot of times, you know, I was off doing 
printing problems, you know, or dealing with, with postal regulations, you know, had nothing to do with the content of the magazine. There were always other people who had, had as much to do with the day to day as I did, you know, and, and, and a lot of times more, you know, I mean, as, as it went on, you know, I became the publisher, you know, I was never technically the editor and, and I became the publisher and that meant keeping the, you know, the ship afloat, you know, and that meant, you know, paying bills and, you know, dealing with taxes and, you know, dealing with printers and dealing with, you know, copyright offices and things. And it was a much very, very not what you think of as like, you know, oh, you were a rock magazine publisher. You know, I wasn't Barry Kramer, you know, hanging out with, with rock stars, you know, backstage um, or Jan Winter for that matter. I just watched the Cream documentary the other day. And, you know, I mean, that wasn't us at all. You know, we, we were pretty sober. I mean, really sober in every sense of the word. Yeah, I, I think that uh, I think that you did a pretty good job because uh, obviously the magazine had a place for us in the rock, you know, us rock fans. And I, I'm very proud of what we accomplished, and I, I I'm not diminishing it in the slightest. I just I just have have learned in years subsequent what I might have done were I better equipped to be a magazine publisher. You know, we could have we could have done better. We could have you know had more success. We could have had more impact. Um, we could have made some more money. So, you know, but, you know, we were, we had no money to start with. Our initial investment was $35, mm-hmm. you know, and, I, you know, I, I, I thought that, you, you know, the, like sweat equity would get you as far as you needed to go. I didn't realize you really need to have a pile of money to, to launch a business. You know, I, I thought we could just build it up a little by little, which we did. But, you know, had we had, you know, a proper funding to begin with, we could have done something quite different. I mean, you know, when, when spin started just as we were ending, or right after we ended, and you know, and and word on the street was that Bobby Guccione had gotten a million dollars from his father to start a magazine, and I'm, you know, my I just felt really very tangibly that you know, had we had a million dollars, we would have done a lot better than that, you know, but we had you know a dollar, and right. so we did the best we could. And the and why did it end? Just was it money? It was a bunch of things actually. I mean, I I've, I've told this story a lot of times, and I hope it's still true. But uh, I mean. <laughs> I hope the first time I told it, it was true because I've been repeating it ever since. Um, we were disenfranchised unintentionally by MTV. Um, you know, our, our idea that we were covering things that nobody else would cover, which by that time was, you know, the post-punk new romantic era, you know, the kind of British pop of the Adam Ant school, you know, Duran Duran, Culture Club, that kind of thing, Ultravox. We had felt like we were able to provide an American audience with insight into that kind of music because we cared about it and then mtv came along and all of a sudden all we could do was write about it and they could show it and play it you know i mean there was no national american radio network that would ever play you know a new single by you know wide boy awake you know we could write about it but you know and that was our that was our franchise you know we could we could bring this stuff that we discovered and share it with with our readers um and then mtv came along and it was like they play it twice a day on, you know, in prime time for you know kids who can now see the see the music, hear the records, and get a, get get a much bigger sense of what these bands are about. 120 minutes of things like that. So we just felt like our our unique selling point was gone. At the same time, we'd all gotten older. I mean, I turned 30, and the appeal of some of the music that was popular, you know, and we hadn't really found anything that excited us in the, in, in 82, 83, 84, the same way that it had earlier. And so we were kind of like fighting our own instincts because we could see that this was popular. I mean, we, our best-selling issue was the one with Adam Ant on the cover holding a Christmas box, 16, number 69. 
but we didn't care. You know, it was kind of like, do we want to write about these bands that we don't care about because it's, it'll keep us in business or maybe we shouldn't be in business, you know? And so that was kind of the, the, the growing feeling that I had was that we were sort of doing it out of obligation rather than out of joy. And um, so there, that, those, were, those were some of the elements and also money. And, you know, we were kind of like, you know, we were getting to that point of like, you know, the band wasn't, it wasn't fun to be in the band anymore. We were just getting in the, you know, in the van and driving around and playing the shows. And it was like, what do we need to do this for? You know, and, and, and I also thought like, you know, I don't want to be poor the rest of my life. You know, it was, it was, it was just hard, you know, and it, it was, it was also emotionally trying. I mean, it was like, you know, you, you'd see like a, you know, you wouldn't get paid for a, a, an ad or something like that. And it would end up being like this very personal thing for me because it meant that I couldn't pay somebody who'd spent, you know, two days writing an article for us because some jerk, you know, in, in, in some office in Hollywood, you know, couldn't be bothered to like process a purchase order, you know, and it, it, it just, just stopped being fun. So it, it, it was time to go. But uh, over time, you know, the reputation of the magazine has just grown and grown and grown. I mean, people, people now, you know, pat me on the back all the time for you know, the great stuff that we did, even if, you know, even if we never knew at the time that we were doing it, you know, it's, 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 it's been fun. You know, it's been great. All 96 of the original issues of Trouser Press are available now to read on TrouserPress.com. The site has a great search function, so you can actually follow the life of your favorite band, as well as the birth of punk, new wave and underground music, as if you were actually there. In addition to continuing his life as a music journalist, Ira has written album notes for a number of artists, as well as two novels. His latest book, Mark Boland, Killed and Crash, is available now and is the subject of part two of our interview, so please make sure to click on the link. If you'd like to comment on this episode, have suggestions for future episodes, or just want to say hi, please email thecreationistpodcast at gmail.com. And please don't forget to subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcast platform. The Creationist is mastered in post-production by Paul Farron. I'm Steve Waxman, and I created this podcast.